Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read a few verses from the end of the chapter. There's been a word. Linda listed some words on her mind on resurrection morning. I've had a word in my mind this last few days. And I want to share it with you this morning. Let's read from verse 18 to verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There are moments in life where you just seem to be more thoughtful than at other times. Poignant, uh, thinking deeply, maybe resolving to live differently or to do something differently. A simple example might be New Year's Day. Or a notable birthday, you may sit and take a few moments to ponder life if you have time to slow down and do so. I think life offers no moments more powerful for that sort of reflection than being at a gravesite. It's a place where we find that hope can seem to be lost, gone. It's a place where despair is especially tangible and visible. It's a place where death seems to have won. Death seems to have had the final word. Sin has had its way. It's a place where you can feel utterly powerless. A graveside is a place where humanity hits rock bottom, where all of our perceived power and strength is exposed as being utterly empty. A place where all the money and all the power in the world cannot actually change the situation. Where all our priorities for the day, our to-do lists, the things that we hope to achieve in the day or in the week, just seem to fade away in that moment. And I always try to get as close to the graveside as I can without encroaching on the privacy of those who are mourning. I don't like the sort of small talk that you can get in those scenarios a few meters back where people might be talking about the weather or the football or the price of milk. I find those moments to be some of the most precious that you can have in life. 
moments of, that are sober and serious and very powerful in terms of recalibrating your thinking. And they've passed so quickly. You'll have a church service that, that will be maybe 45 minutes or an hour long. And then there'll be afterwards, there'll be tea and sandwiches and chat. And then maybe back to someone's house or whatever. And those moments, those minutes are so brief, but they are so powerful. And I think it's wonderful that the good news of the victory of King Jesus started in a graveyard. It started in the place where humanity is at the absolute rock bottom. Where a woman called Mary Magdalene, she wasn't Mary the mother of anyone. And she wasn't Mary the sister of anyone. We read of Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary the sister of Martha and, and, and others who were either the daughter of somebody or the mother of somebody or the sister of somebody. But Mary is just Mary Magdalene. She's just Mary from Magdala. She hasn't got anybody. <laughs> she hasn't got anybody. To, to the best of our knowledge, she doesn't have any family. Her family was the disciples, was the, the, the group that went around with Jesus. She may well not have had a home. And she is at rock bottom. Her Jesus is, is dead and she is going to anoint his body in the grave. And I was considering just studying Mary Magdalene for this morning. And I thought, no, next year. But she's at rock bottom. But in that graveyard that morning, there is power at work. And she encounters power. Power that, that Paul says in Ephesians, he talks about the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. The mighty strength, the mighty power of God. Mary Magdalene encountered that power on Easter morning. And the word that's in my mind today, lots of words that you can associate with with, with Easter, Easter is a time you just never run out of stuff to preach at Easter. Christmas can be difficult because you sort of think of the go to the same texts in the same places. Easter, you just never run out of stuff to talk about. Resurrection always, always is a happy hunting ground for a preacher. But the word that's in my mind is par. Par. And this power that, that was manifested in the garden that Easter morning, we have seen this power before. And John shows us most clearly where we've seen the power before. Because John, as he writes his gospel, points us back to, 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 to another time of God's display of power. He does it from the very first words of his gospel, where he starts off with the words, "...in the beginning." Anybody reading that, if, if John had somebody beside him sort of proofreading his stuff or checking it or giving him a second opinion, somebody would have picked that up and read it and said, John, that's how a book starts if you're writing about creation. And I'd say John would have just said, exactly, because <laughs> that's what I'm writing about. I'm writing about creation. And John then goes on in, in his book to do various things that point us back to the creation in Genesis. When you read John 1 and 2, you, you sort of can hardly notice this, but John has a sequence of days where on, on the, 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 the first, you know, 
day of, of describing what's going on in, in, the, in the life of John the Baptist in particular, John then follows that up with the next day. That's the second day. And he then follows it up in verse 35 with the next day. That's the third day. And then he follows it up in verse 43 with the next day. He is very, very clearly giving us a sequence of days. One, two, three. That's us up to the fourth day. And then at the start of John chapter 2, he says on the third day. Three days after that, that's the seventh day. That's the end of a week. John starts his gospel with a seven-day period very clearly marked out so that we will know that he's writing about creation and specifically new creation. And he, as he starts his gospel with a, with a week, he ends it with a week as well. We read in John 12, which is only halfway through the gospel, but John 12 begins the last week of Jesus' life up to the crucifixion. And, and again, we get this time note. It's six days before the Passover. In John's reckoning, Jesus is crucified as the Passover lambs are slain. And he will then spend the seventh day of that week in the tomb. Saturday. Another little note back to creation is that on day six of this week in John's gospel, Pilate brings Jesus out in front of the crowd after being horrifically beaten and fled and, and, and sets him in front of the crowd and says, Behold the man. It's the sixth day and on the sixth day of creation in Genesis, God creates man. All these little hints all the way through John's gospel. And then the one that is just dripping with hope. There are certain little phrases in, in the Bible that for me just, I don't know. <laughs> they just do something. They push all the buttons. Random little phrases. Like at the end of, I think it's Ruth chapter 1. I can't remember. I haven't read it in a while. But, but there's, there's this whole bleak story in Ruth chapter 1 where everybody's dying. And then it says at the end of the chapter, but it was, it was harvest time. Or it was time for that. I can't remember. It's just some little note. It was time for the wheat harvest or something like that. That is a sound of hope at the end of Ruth chapter 1. And at the start of John 20, you have this, just this sequence. It seems like it's just a, a time marker. And it's not. <laughs> it's hope. Early on the first day of the week. So John's given us a week at the start of his gospel. He's given us a week at the end of his gospel that has culminated with Jesus resting in the tomb. And now this is a new week. A new week has begun. And early on the first day of the week, while it's still dark, and we're back in Genesis again, creation. And as if that's not enough, at the end of John 20, Jesus, as he's in the upper room, breathes on the disciples just like God breathed into Adam and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So John all through has given us all of these markers pointing us back to creation because the power that raised Jesus from the dead was the same power that created the universe. And this act of resurrection was the greatest display of power ever seen in history on that first Easter morning. And you may then wonder, how does that affect me? So what, 2,000 years ago there was a display of power? Ephesus 
which obviously was the city where Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians to, was a center of power. They loved power. It was a center of political power where you had what was called the imperial cult. The imperial cult means people worshipped the emperor. You worshipped Caesar as a god. He declared himself to be a son of God. And Ephesus was a, was a stronghold for Rome and for the political power of Rome. It was also a stronghold of religious power. Most, most visible in the worship of Artemis, who we talked about a few months ago in the series on, on women in ministry and looking at the context of Ephesus. So it was a place that was just full of power. Symbols of power, people of power, religions of power. But for Paul, the greatest display of power in the midst of all of that was not any political leader or any goddess or any false god. The greatest display of power was God raising Jesus from the dead. Not only raising him, but enthroning him. Not only enthroning him, but enthroning him above all his enemies. And Paul does this thing where he just stacks up a whole pile of words. Like your English teacher would just flip out if Paul was in the class. You'd have an absolute fit. Because Paul would not sort of try to pick one good word to put in his sentence. If he had three good words, he'd just bang them all in there and stack them up. And what it literally says here in Ephesians 1.19 is the energy of the might of his strength. Just emphatic power. The energy of the might of his strength. And the amazing thing in Ephesians 1 and the amazing thing about the resurrection, if you ask what that has got to do with me, is that Paul says in Ephesians 1.19 that that power, that incomparably great power is for us today. That power is in us and available to us it's not some one-off thing god raised jesus from the dead there was a display of power and then the power button was turned off that power is within me and it is within you as a follower of jesus you may not feel it and as we conclude a bit later we'll see maybe how we need to pray but that power is available today for you and for me that same power. Just look at it. Ephesians 1, 19, 20. His incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Same power. Not a lesser version. Not a diet, sugar-free, low-fat version of the resurrection power. The whole shebang is available to us and in us. And Paul prays in, in Ephesians 3 that, that out of his glorious riches that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Not in your arms or in your legs or in your intellect, but in your inner being. Rarely do we need physical power to get through the hardships of life. It is a deeper power that we need. Power in the inner man. And that power is a result of the working of the Holy Spirit within us. In fact, for Paul, spirit and power go hand in hand. You can't separate them. Where the Holy Spirit is, there is power. 
And if power is being manifested among the people of God, that is the Holy Spirit at work. In fact, he says something very similar to Ephesians 1.19 in Romans 8.11, but he doesn't mention power in Romans 8.11. He just mentions spirit. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit which is in you. Very similar to Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, where there is resurrection power working in us. Paul says in Romans 8, there is the spirit working in us to resurrect. We are a people of power. I can tell you, you need to crave power. You need to be power hungry. You need to aim and aspire to be a powerful person. Power. Now, the problem is, powerful people just aren't nice. Sure they're not. If, if, if we read that somebody is very powerful, or, or if you tell me you know, that, that, that someone's a very powerful person, that's usually a negative thing. What that usually means is that person has got the, the means at their disposal to squish you. That person will lash out at you. That's a very powerful per- person. Is a sort of maybe a subtle way of saying, don't mess with him. Don't mess with her. Because power in the world's thinking corrupts people. A politician who uses power for their own gain, a dictator who uses power to oppress others, a leader who operates even in a church context in a power imbalance to emotionally or to spiritually abuse another person. Power can be such a negative thing in the world's understanding. And like so many people that come to mind when we think of powerful people in a, in a secular context or in the, in the world in terms of leadership or or business or whatever, so much of it is negative. That's not the type of power we're talking about. Get that out of your head. <laughs> but I'm telling you, you need to crave power. The sort of power that Jesus gives. You need to crave it, desire it, be hungry for it. What does this power then actually look like? This energy, this might, this strength. It's hidden. Nobody saw what happened in the garden that morning. Nobody. Nobody. I'd love to see it. (laughs) Nobody knows what actually happened in that tomb. Mary, as I love to remind people, is the only person who can say, when he rose from the dead, I saw him first. But she didn't see him rise. She didn't see what nobody knows what happened in the darkness, in the quietness, of that tomb on resurrection morning. It was hidden. And the sort of power I'm talking about today, and I'm going to give you just a few examples as we, as we head towards a close. The sort of power I'm talking about today is hidden power. It's power in the inner person. Power to live. Others might not notice it. It's not visible, it's not outward, it doesn't draw attention to itself. It is a deep working of the power of the Spirit, the resurrection power in the inner person. Let me look at a few ways that it, that it works its way out in our lives. Number one, it gives us power over the powers. The powers is a term that Paul uses for darkness. 
And although we don't talk about it an awful lot, and although some people seem to be utterly oblivious to it, there is a realm of darkness. There are spiritual powers that are against humanity and against especially the church. And Paul says in Ephesians 1, the power that that raised Christ from the dead that's in us, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, Caesar, and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. All of the powers that attack humanity, the dark spiritual forces that work in what's called in Ephesians the heavenly realms. Paul says that the power that is in us means we are above all of those things. Because Ephesians 2 says, not only is Christ seated in the heavenly realms, but verse 6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So all the stuff that's under his feet is under my feet and under your feet. That's the power that works in us. That's the power that's available to us that we don't lay hold of. And, and we maybe all sorts of images come to our mind when we think of, of these dark powers. But the way they operate is, is in idolatry, is in the abuse of power, is in worshipping other things. It's in greed and selfishness and self-obsession. Those are the sort of visible manifestations of those dark powers. And because of the power of the resurrection within us, we don't have to bow the knee to those things. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to pursue greed. We don't have to just constantly be thinking about ourselves because we've been given power to live differently. Ephesians 6, as as he talks again about spiritual warfare, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I crave power. I am a power-hungry man. (laughs) In the very best sense of the word, I hope. Power-hungry hungry yearning for power come on lord the resurrection give us power over those things it gives us power also you know you might say do i really need this resurrection power in my life I, i'm i'm muddling through just fine and paul says in ephesians 2 1 as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins do you need power yes you do <laughs> Every single one of us. This power, this resurrection power, gives us power over sin. Power over sin. What happened to Jesus happened to us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So as we were dead in sin, he dies on the cross. He goes into that tomb. God raises him up and at the same time raises us with him from the death that we were living in due to our sins we are forgiven did i mention it last week i think i did did i mention i don't know how many times i've mentioned we're forgiven that is what we celebrate today we're forgiven the exile is over the presence is back we are a forgiven people sin has no grip on us anymore death has no grip grip on no what was that song we um death death what was that song we sang earlier what was the line about death come on death has lost its hope no it wasn't that what was it Uh, death cannot hold you is is the other one that i like (laughs) um 
Oh, no, no, it was the grave. The grave has no claim on me. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for helping. <laughs> but the grave has no claim on me. It doesn't. And there will be an open grave someday, and there will be me. But the grave has no claim on me. It won't hold me. Couldn't hold him, and it won't hold me. We have power over sin. We are forgiven. I've often thought of of Jesus as being like an eel. (laughs) If you've ever tried to hold an eel, holding an eel is almost impossible. Those things are so slippery and wriggly, you just can't get a grip of them. And Jesus was like that when he was in the tomb. Death couldn't hold him. <laughs> Tried to hold him and he just slipped out of its grasp. And it's the, it's the same with every one of us. What is the thing that allows death to lay hold on us? Sin. Sin allows death to get a grip and get a hold on us. And if sin is forgiven, then death <coughs> cannot get hold of me. The grave has no claim on me. I'm a slippery eel and I'm getting out of its hands. It has no sin to grasp onto me. And if we don't have power over sin, then our lives will be marked by a cycle of sinning, feeling shame, determining not to do something again, not doing it for a week or a week and a half, and then doing it again, and then feeling shame, and just this endless cycle we need power to live in victory over sin. We can't do it on our own. The power that resurrection brings is also, according to Colossians 1.11, the power to endure. You ever wake up and just wonder how you're going to get through the day? Something that you face, some person, some situation, you're maybe just exhausted and there's no way out of doing what you have to do. You have to get up and you have to get on and you have to do it. And you think in your mind, you project forward to about nine or 10 o'clock at night and you're just like, how on earth am I going to get from here to there? How am I going to endure? How am I going to get through this? Paul prays in Colossians 1 that we would be strengthened with power according to his glorious might that we may have great endurance. We're talking about power today in the inner person, resurrection power. We're not talking about power to do tricks, power to impress people, power to be successful. We're talking about power to endure, to make it through, to keep on keeping on. Not through willpower or prideful determination, but through the the power of the resurrection working in us. The Greek lexicon says that this this word endure is one who is not swerved from his or her deliberate purpose and loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. The winds blow, the waves lash against the boat, and still you stand, not because of your own strength but because of the resurrection power that is within you. Not only do we have endurance in Colossians 1.11, we've got patience. That's that beautiful word, macrothumia. It's long-suffering in the fruit of the Spirit in the King James Version. It's when you put up with people for a long time. And it's a beautiful thing, and it shows the world the glory of God. 
Because when people just fall out and take the huff with one another after a few years, that destroys the gospel. But you know what? When people walk together and forgive each other and love each other long period of time, that shows the world that we are his disciples. It's a beautiful thing. It's the power of God that causes us to do that. And we remain joyful. Jesus was not happy in Gethsemane. And he was not happy on the cross. He was joyful. And there was joy set before him that enabled him to endure. Paul was not happy with Silas in the Philippian prison. The choice to remain joyful under pressure. When everything is going pear-shaped and you determine, I am still going to rejoice. That takes power. That's resurrection power. There is power to hope. We sang of it earlier, living hope. Peter's first letter is a go-to text for people who are suffering. And the first thing that he says after his introduction is he grounds their hope in the resurrection. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living hope hope. There are times in life, I remember this time last year, the Spence family had a difficult time. And I can remember sitting in, the, in what we call the lounge at, at, at mum's house and sitting there on the morning of dad's funeral and just thinking, how did people do this without hope? How do they do it? How do they process? How do they stand the pain, the emotion without hope? Paul says that we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Our grief is different. It's still grief. It still hurts. It's still extreme pain and anguish. But there is hope. That hope comes from the resurrection. And see in Romans 15, where again the power and the Spirit are together in this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope. This is Paul again, just extreme. How many, how many exaggerations, how, how much sort of hyperbole can you get in to, to one body of work that not only that you'd have a little bit of hope that would get you through the day but that you'd overflow with hope, that you'd have enough hope that others could have some as well by the Spirit and by the power of God. And the last one is the power to know that we're loved. For some people that comes easy and for some people it doesn't. And Paul prays. In fact, John, as John starts off that last week or as he gets to the middle of that last week, he has Jesus at the start of John 13 washing the disciples' feet and he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's Paul's introduction to the crucifixion. This is a display of love. John's introduction to the crucifixion. This is a display of love that's a, that you're about to see here as you read the closing chapters of John. And Paul prays in Ephesians 3. The reason he wants them to have power in Ephesians 3.17 is that together with all the Lord's people, they would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
It takes power to understand and receive and live in the love that Jesus has for us. This is a world where people don't get loved. This is a world where people get let down by those who should not let them down. A world where people in their minds can think, I am not loved. I cannot be loved. I am not lovely. Nobody loves me. Jesus says there's power in the resurrection. And Paul prays that you would have it so that you would know you are loved. In Northern Ireland, we have this wonderful phrase. That's powerful. It's, it's frequently heard in our house. It's become a bit of a catchword lately. That's powerful. Northern Irish folk love the phrase. And human beings can do some powerful things. Absolutely powerful. There is in England a man with two dogs. And he has run a marathon every day for 112 consecutive days. With his two dogs. Now obviously I would do that. But my dogs would fight. So I have to just give it a miss. <laughs> this dude, every day, that's his Strava from a day or two ago, the last time I checked, 112th marathon in 112 days. There's the two collies in the middle, it's a bit dark. He's just, that's, that's powerful. Seriously, mate, that, that, fair play to you. Uh, he was on the radio, there's one afternoon, uh, he was on the radio in the car and I thought, mate, that's amazing, fair play. Um, and as I, as I was looking up a, a picture for, for him, I then found this lady in Australia, who I don't know where she's at now, but earlier this year she completed 150 marathons in 150 days. And I thought, that's powerful. Maybe a bit extreme, you know. Maybe something there just, she needs to, I don't know, a bit obsessed, a bit addicted maybe. You know, if we work hard, we can, we can achieve some truly powerful things. Human beings have done some amazing stuff, amazing stuff in their own strength and in their own might. They have done lots of things. I, I just found out reading the newspaper or browsing it a couple of weeks ago that a guy who used to live behind us in, up in Castle Rise, he does 100K runs. He was doing one the other week around Craigavon. 100K. <laughs> not five, not 10, 100. <laughs> Mate, Seriously. Human beings can do some powerful things. But you know what? Can't do any of that. We can't in our own strength and determination muster up power over the powers. We cannot muster up power over sin. You're not defeating sin in your own strength. If you've tried it, you'll know what I'm talking about. You'll not. You'll just get in that cycle. Sin, shame, guilt, repentance, sin, shame, guilt, repentance, sin, shame, guilt, repentance. It just goes over and over again. I don't care how early you get up in the morning, how determined you are, what your diet is, <laughs> what dogs you've got. You're not going to overcome sin in your own power. You're not going to endure in your own power. You'll crumble. You'll fall eventually. You'll not have hope. If all you're relying on to have hope in this world that throws so many things at us that are hurtful and disappointing and, and whatever, we won't be able to muster up hope. We'll, just, we'll give up hope. We'll become hopeless. And we will convince ourselves that we are not loved. These things, Paul says, takes power. That power started in a graveyard. That resurrection power was revealed to a broken woman called Mary Magdalene one morning, one Sunday, a couple of thousand years ago. Death does not have the last word. 
Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Resurrection power happens best in a graveyard. It happens best in a place where one is willing to die. Paul says, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection. Bang, would love to stop there, wouldn't we? <laughs> love to know the power of his resurrection and just go home. He says, no, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, verse 11, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. If you follow a crucified Messiah, there's going to be suffering and there's going to be opposition. And Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection in that. And notice as we finish, if, this, if, you know, if I say to you the same power that raised Jesus from the dead operates in you and just quietly in your mind you're thinking, no, nah, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm telling you, it does. On the basis of God's word, it does. And if it doesn't feel like that, we need to pray differently. Both for ourselves and as we've learned this last few weeks, how we pray for one another. Talked last week in the Lord's Prayer about praying that we'd be able to forgive each other, praying that people would be delivered from a trial that would break them, praying that, uh, that people would have the provisions that they need. Paul says you need to pray for one another that you'd have power. When's the last time you prayed for somebody in here and said, Lord, give that person power? Because Paul does this in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glory and glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power. When you're praying for each other, when we're praying here on Tuesday nights, pray for power. Crave power. <laughs> because there's resurrection power at our disposal and we don't tap into it. And we don't have to do anything nifty or cool to tap into it. We need to believe what God's word says and we need to pray that that power would be something that is a reality in our lives. We're going to break bread as we remember Jesus.